1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ
2: and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I never missed a single meeting, and I volunteer for every committee as long as I could lead it.
3: She inspires me in ways that Linda never has. She even wants to read my novel. But you haven't written your novel.
4: That's the whole point. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. This week on the show, author Tom Parada. He is the beautiful brains behind the HBO series The Leftovers.
3: It's time again for the world to mourn the departed. Disappearance of 2% of the world's population. None of them are coming back.
2: It's an agnostic take on what might happen if a whole lot of us suddenly disappeared.
4: We talked to Tom about his nerdy youth. My nickname in high
2: school was Frodo. Then a nerd confession from our former intern, Claire.
4: He said that he too enjoyed Game of Thrones, which I thought was a sign that I should tell him everything I felt about the show. It's more of a cautionary tale than a confession, but it's amazing.
2: That's coming up on this week's Nerdette.
4: This is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. This
2: week, a conversation with author Tom Parada. He wrote The Wishbones, Election, Joe College, Little Children, The Abstinence Teacher, and most recently, The Leftovers.
4: My dear mother and I read The Leftovers together over Christmas, and I really fell in love with the book. I don't know if it's because I became sort of a religion nerd when I went to a Lutheran college, but I also just really loved the storyline in general. I thought he told the story really well, in addition to the premise being really interesting, And then I heard an interview with Tom Parada on Fresh Air, and he talked about how reading books is sort of his own religion, and I just fell in love. I think he's wonderful.
2: Tom is executive producing and writing on the new HBO series, The Leftovers, based on his novel. He'd stop by to talk to us about the influences that made him the writer he is today, and why his nickname in high school was Frodo.
4: We know you're a big reader, and we kind of wanted to start with just talking to you a little bit about some of the literary influences that impacted you, especially when you were younger, but even now, who are some of the first authors that you nerded out about?
1: I read a lot as a kid, but it was sort of very unsystematic, you know, whatever came my way. So the first stuff that I got really excited about would come through the uh, book club that we had in school. You know, you'd get to like check off three books, it was like a paperback club, and I was a big reader of anything sports-related back in those days. But then I remember coming across some Twilight Zone paperbacks. And I, even to this day, I have no idea if Rod Serling wrote those stories first and then turned them into Twilight Zones or if they were <laughs> they were sort of storyizations of Twilight Zone episodes. But uh, those books were huge for me. And then uh, I thought that I single-handedly discovered The Hobbit in a drugstore. <laughs> uh, my Lord of the Rings obsession was sort of the defining literary experience of my adolescence, and I guess maybe midway through high school. You know, I do remember I had an AP English class, and we had a book called Nine Short Modern Novels, included uh, The Metamorphosis by Kafka, Heart of Darkness by Conrad, Beast in the Jungle by Henry James, Faulkner's Old Man... Oh, The Stranger was in there. I mean, it was just an incredible batch of short novels that kind of defined modern literature for me, and, and I remember just being blown away by one after another of them. I remember we'd be allowed to read in school on Monday afternoons, and I would just sit there, and I could not believe, you know, that they were letting us read a book like The Stranger or The Metamorphosis that seemed so subversive and insane, you know, because I think I had grown up in a world where borders of what was appropriate was pretty heavily policed. and the idea that somehow suddenly in school I was being handed a book like the Metamorphosis, where you know a character turns into a bug and everybody has to kind of deal with them as a bug. It just it actually felt illicit to me in some way. It made me wonder like where this culture was that something like this was <laughs> was considered like really great because it didn't seem like anyone outside of this literature class that I knew would have agreed.
4: I love that idea of feeling like you single-handedly discovered The Hobbit. Because I think, especially as a kid, when you come across, I mean, anything for the first time, whether it's like, I mean, I sort of can relate to that with the first Beatles CD I heard. It's just kind of like, oh, my God, it's this whole world that I have just found and unearthed, and it's so magical and incredible, Did you try and like force it on other people? I think that's often a typical reaction so that you would be able to relate to someone else on the level of how incredible this thing is.
1: Oh, yeah. And that's all that adolescence was, as far as I remember it, was bonding over shared experience. Now, most of that experience for me was music. You know, I had a couple friends and particularly my cousin, Mike, who was a few years older, who was constantly saying, you've got to listen to this you got to listen to that. And he would take me to concerts. really remember thinking in the same way that, you know, I personally discovered The Hobbit myself. I felt like everything else had been discovered by my cousin, Mike. But the two of us, you know, had the whole world covered. I was so evangelical about The Lord of the Rings that my nickname in high school was Frodo. <laughs>
2: That's beautiful. That is fantastic. Did you also have... Sort of crazy curly hair, or was it just because of the Lord of the Rings? I'm trying to picture if it was also... Oh,
1: no, you know what, I, I think, <laughs> you know, this was the mid to late 70s, and well, almost everybody had long hair, and what I would have loved was to have the sort of lank, you know, Almond Brothers sort of uh, straight hair, but I'm Italian, and my hair grew out in these sort of bulging layers. You know, I think some guys in Leonard Skinner had a similar look. <laughs>
2: So a little hobbity, that's good. A little
1: little hobbity, (laughs) and I'm not very tall, so that didn't help either. You've
2: said in another interview that the first story you remember writing was about astronauts, and space is one of the things I nerd out about most. Can you tell us a little about writing that story about the Apollo astronauts?
1: Well, weirdly, it's, it's the same story that Tom Hanks made the movie out of. The space program was a very big part of kid culture in those days, you know, and I still remember... The moon landing, and I remember my father bringing home, he was a mail carrier, and brought home these collectible stamps, which I think I still have. I remember he wasn't the kind of guy who really gave us things in a kind of solemn way, but he went out of his way to get these commemorative stamps and he put them in a plastic bag and he handed them over. Something really important is happening, and here's this memento of this thing. So I do remember that, and I remember when. Apollo 13, there's some question whether they'd be able to rescue the guys. And I think that I wrote it. Our third-grade teacher was upset, and she asked us to write about it, I think because of her own anxiety, probably more than the third-graders had anxiety. But I wrote this very optimistic thing about continuing to hope and to not give up. And, you know, I think it really was about pleasing my teacher. And, in fact, she was extremely pleased. I remember the big result was that she sent it to her sister, who was in Japan, and that seemed to everybody like an amazing thing, that I had written a paragraph story in third grade that had gone to Japan.
2: You were an internationally best-selling author
1: at <laughs> I age That's the only time I think I've connected with the Japanese audience. <laughs> I think that I really got, you know, it wasn't just a pat on the back, it was some sense that if you told the story right, it could have these... Uh, completely unanticipated consequences and it could make people uh, pay attention to you in a way that they hadn't before. And I'm sorry to say that I was, like many kids, I was an attention seeker. And I think I got some right then. And I think it kind of got deep into my bloodstream.
4: I mean, you could call it attention, but that's also just like positive reinforcement, right? I mean, it's like, hey, you're good at this thing. We should commend you for being good at this.
1: I know, I know. And, and I think, interestingly, unlike sports, say, uh, in that world, it didn't seem to be a thing that other people were particularly good at or cared to be good at. So I always felt like I had it all to myself. I didn't know other kids saying, oh, I'd want to be a writer. I knew lots of kids who wanted when I was in high school to play guitar in a rock band, which I also tried to do. And that was very competitive. And I was not the best guitar player in my high school by a long shot. But I always felt like I was the best writer. And that seemed really important. And I remember also thinking that I was the only writer, and that in some funny way, I owned this place as material. I don't know when this came over me, but I was definitely still in high school, and I'd be watching my friends and thinking, you know, I'm going to write about this, and if I don't write about it, nobody will, and I think that little bit of mission stuck with me for a long time, and my first book, Bad Haircut, was very much exactly about those experiences and that time in my life, and... Lately, because of Facebook, there's this Facebook group for the town that I grew up in, and everybody has a place to remember that time. And I really think that if Facebook had existed when I was a younger writer, I wouldn't have written Bad Haircut or probably The Wishbones, because I never would have felt like I exclusively owned this subject matter It was my job to remember this stuff because nobody else was going to remember it. I mean, it's a ridiculously selfish way to imagine the world like other people aren't remembering.
2: That makes perfect sense to me, the idea that you were doing it again for the benefit of not just yourself, but for others. You were writing as a form of creativity, but also documentation. And I think you're right that young people document everything now, but they don't necessarily tell as many stories.
1: I think you're right. And when the book came out, all sorts of people who I don't think read contemporary fiction by anyone else, when they heard that I had written a bunch of stories about the world that we knew, they were really went after it very hungrily. And people really, you know, I still go to my reunions and people talk about Bad Haircut in particular as being a book that really matters to them. And I think that the reason they took so enthusiastically to Facebook was that people are hungry to tell their stories and to document and to remember. And in that sense, the Internet has made good on its promise of allowing everyone to be a writer and allowing everyone to, in a sense, like curate their memories, but it may have left a little less room for that kind of storytelling, the storytelling that's sort of to preserve the memory of a moment in time or a community at a particular moment.
4: This is Nerdette. We're talking with author Tom Parada. So
2: if those positive experiences, even when you were still in school, made you want to be a writer, I bet that summer you spent as a garbage man maybe sealed the deal even more.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm in my early 50s now, and I think I'm turning into the... I don't have a a ton of nostalgia, but I'm very aware, I think, of how many things have changed. And we've gone through a kind of consciousness revolution in the past 10 years. But I think one of the real things that's changed is when I was a young writer, there was a very American sense that a writer needed to experience the real world. And to me, it was like a working class credibility thing. Even though I grew up working class, I felt like it was really important that I worked side by side with, you know, working people. And especially it was important to me because I had gone to Yale at that point. And it was important for me to tell myself that I was still part of this world that I grew up in. But there's also like a test of one's toughness, and I think experience was a kind of touchstone. Like, people would think, oh, I have to go and work on a fishing boat, or I have to hike across India. I mean, there's still some of that, though. I don't think this idea that a writer needs to understand working class experience really exists anymore doesn't have that kind of, I almost find it hard to encapsulate what it meant, but it really gave me credibility, I think, to say say that I I was a garbage man and that I got up every morning and I went to work with these guys who did it every day. And, you know, there's something maybe a little fictional about that. Like I did it for two months a year and they did it for 30 years of their life, but it definitely made a big impression on me at the time.
4: I have a friend who actually this summer is working in a landfill in Alaska He has this really beautifully poetic sensibility. He recently told me that he feels like he's an undertaker for the cast-off bits of people's lives, dutifully guiding them to the underworld. He totally has this like almost absurdly poetic sensibility. But I feel like there is something especially interesting about the symbolism of dealing with people's trash.
1: Yeah, well, to me it was like a test. And I imagine that the test would be Even tougher would be, say, to work in a mortuary or something. I remember thinking that I can't turn away from this. I can't hide from this. This is real. I always made myself smell and I always made myself look, you know, even though uh, I almost got sick a few times. And that, by the way, was a big thing among the garbage men was uh, they would tell stories about what could make a garbage man throw up. (laughs) So Years later, they'd say, oh, I remember that time that Danny, you know, opened that can and... (laughs) Don't open the can, Danny. Don't do it. (laughs) And then they'd have to relive what it looked like when Danny lost it. The uh, flip side of that was that the garbage men loved nurses. And my thought on that was that we were sort of the dirtiest people in society, and nurses all wore white, and they seemed very clean and antiseptic. Of course, they had, like us, had to deal with, obviously, the really unpleasant parts of life that everybody else would prefer not to think about if a nurse walked by in her white clothes and we were in the garbage truck, the truck would actually stop and we'd honk and we'd all wave. And I think it wasn't actually harassment. I think some of these guys would Mm -hmm. hoot and holler and harass women. But with nurses, it was more like we were paying tribute to them for being so clean.
4: It wasn't actually harassment. I love that. If I got a petty for every time I heard that, Tom.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I'm trying to say there was some weird element of respect and tribute, though I guess with some harassment there is also some weird element of (laughs) tribute underneath the uh, sexist hostility and implicit threat. (laughs) There you go. I'm I'm thinking like a garbage man here.
2: (laughs) I think that you're right, though, that I come from a blue-collar background, and for me, hearing that someone has been in a manual labor job or worked a lot of rough hours in the restaurant business or any of those kinds of things does give me a sense of camaraderie with them in my new world of, you know, public radio and this and that. And I think that there's something to it still. I think that yours is one of the more extreme examples we can think of because just the smell alone, we can only imagine, right, of being up close and and personal (laughs) in the summer. summer. yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that at that time there still existed some sense of working class solidarity and I remember being raised very much to think that there was dignity in all kinds of work and that, you know, people should be respected no matter what they did and you know, unions were stronger and I think lower middle class people made a living wage and could have a middle class life. And one of the things that's eroded in this country over these years is this sense of the dignity of the working class. Part of that comes with all the inequality, the rising inequality that we've seen is that working class or the idea that somebody without a high school degree can have a middle-class life has disappeared. And so there seems almost to be some, I don't know, there's just not a lot of respect for manual labor and menial jobs. A lot of those jobs have lost the benefits that came with them before and people struggle to live a middle-class life and raise their kids and keep out of poverty and So I do feel like there was respect and working class solidarity that kind of disappeared from the culture a little bit.
4: I can definitely see that. I could talk to you about The Leftovers for hours because I loved it very much. My mom and I actually did this thing for Christmas where we bought each other copies of the book and sort of read it together and talked about what we thought was going to happen. And it was really delightful for so many different reasons. And we've actually recommended it as homework on the show before. We did this thing where we were like, first you have to read the book, then you have to listen to the Fresh Air interview with Tom Prada, and then you have to watch the HBO show. You can't just go straight to the show. This is how things are done. One thing that I thought would be fun to ask you, my great grandmother has this saying or had this saying that she wouldn't want to go to heaven because she wouldn't know anyone there. And I was wondering, for you, do you think you would disappear in the rapture, or would you stay behind with me and Tricia?
1: <laughs> we will drink a lot of beer. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll listen to all the great music. I knew that I would be left behind. I think the idea for me originally came with trying to just take the actual common Christian idea of the rapture seriously. And I remember just thinking, like, if it happened, then I knew that there was a seven-year period of tribulation I just remember thinking, like, I wouldn't change anything. i just continue living my life because I feel like that whole story had nothing to do with me. That didn't really turn out to be the story of the leftovers, but it was my starting point was the absolute assumption that I would be left behind and that even though I knew that I was supposed to get with the program, even then I wouldn't be able to get with the program. So... I think that does suggest a real, either great moral inertia or a real commitment to uh, life here on Earth.
2: A little of both. I think it's a A little little of both, both. (laughs) absolutely. As we mentioned on our show, we like to give our listeners homework. Sometimes it's from us and we've already given, but we'll reassign this week that everyone read the leftovers. But we'd also like you, Tom, to give something that you would like folks to check out as homework. This can be something that you think pairs well with the leftovers or just any piece of film, TV or an experience that you've had that you're excited enough about that you would like other people to try or to do.
1: Today is the day that Philip Seymour Hoffman is starring in A Most Wanted Man, which is adapted from the John Le Carre novel. And for the past couple of years, for whatever reason, I've been very systematically going through the works of Le Carre. German intelligence needs a job to be done. There's a German law won't let it do. Our unit was set up to develop resources. We're not policemen, we're spies. Our sources don't come to us.
3: Hey, Hannibal. Good to see you.
1: We find him. His sentences, I think, are just among the best written by any uh, English language writer. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say he's as great a novelist as Philip Roth, but I think I think he's close in a certain way. And I think of them both as sort of their bodies of work and their distinctive voices rather than individual books. So I would say read some Le Carré and check out this Movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman. To make the world a safer place, isn't that enough? I haven't seen it yet, so I can't vouch for it. But I'm sure it's going to be really interesting, and it's always a kind of melancholy thing to experience the last act of uh, the life of someone who died too young. But that's um, also what this movie will be.
4: That's great homework, author Tom Parada. Thank you so much for taking the time talking with us today. We oh, really my appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you. Your other homework is to check out TLDR. This is the Little Brother podcast from the On the Media people.
2: It's like a buddy cop situation for investigating the human side of the internet. We
4: like these guys a lot. Internet detectives.
0: (laughs) Hey, I'm PJ Vogt. And I'm Alex Goldman. Since we started this podcast, a surprising amount of people have been asking us what TLDR means. Well, I guess it's not surprising per se. se. We never explained it. But we're here to explain it a little more fully. Yeah, it should only take us half an hour. TLDR stands for too long, didn't read. It's old timey internet slang. Old timey as in maybe 10 years old. The idea is that if you read an article that was incredibly boring or long or arcane, you could write TLDR at the bottom as sort of an insult.
1: Or it didn't have to be an insult. Like if somebody wrote a really long post, they might even say on their own thing, TLDR, and then they would have sort of a synopsis of the salient points.
0: I think that's what we were attempting to do with this podcast was make something that sort of touched on the salient points of what interests us on the Internet.
2: More from PJ and Alex next week on Nerdette. But now it's time to hear from you. Nerd confessions. Last week, Lauren Chuljan told us a syrupy sweet story of love and pickles. But not all nerds have it so easy finding love.
4: Our old maid intern Claire called us to tell us this cautionary tale.
3: Lovely nerdettes, it is I, your former intern, calling with a confession. Recently, before Game of Thrones finished its season, my friends convinced me that it would be a good idea for me to try and meet guys on Tinder. And so, being the immature social anthropologist that I am, I thought that would be a good idea. And so, I did that, and it was terrible. But there was a guy I thought was cute, so I liked him. I swiped whichever way that is, left, right, uh, who cares? Anyways, he messaged me, and he asked, you know, what was I doing? And I told him I was watching Game of Thrones, and he said that he, too, enjoyed Game of Thrones, which I thought was a sign that I should tell him everything I felt about the show and my ideas for what was going to happen and my predictions and my prophecies. Which I don't think was what he wanted to hear, because it was radio silence after that. And it's been about, you know, a month. Haven't heard anything back from Matt, I think his name was. (laughs) Moral of the story, don't talk to your Tinder matches about Game of Thrones at Thanks, or else you will die alone forever. There you go. And I miss you guys, and I love you, and I'll talk to you later. Bye.
2: Claire, if he doesn't want to talk about Game of Thrones with you, then he is not the nerd you're looking for. Always be your nerdy self. Don't change for some dude on Tinder.
4: I mean, you know, you can tone it down a little. No spoilers. (laughs) Call us at 312-600-5638 to tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags. Welcome. You can find us at nerdappodcast.com or talk with us on Twitter at At nerdappodcast. You can also like us on Facebook. And join the cool kids who've
2: signed up for our email newsletter. About twice a week, we hit you with a bunch of fun links from all our favorite corners of the internet, book recommendations from Greta, and Arrested Development GIFs from me.
4: I still want to call them gifts, but maybe I'll get over it next week. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobina and Greta Johnson. Joe DeSoe
2: is the WBEZ podcast class president.
4: Some people say I'm an overachiever, but I think they're just jealous. We got help from Iris Lynn and Patrick Burns.
2: Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org.
4: Is it weird? That's my favorite line. Yep. Special (laughs) thanks to Rookie Mag for giving Nerdette some love and listing us as one of their favorite podcasts.
2: We love you too, Rookie, especially your editor, Tavi Gevinson, who we interviewed a few months back on Nerdette. You can listen to our conversation with Tavi about fangirling Beyonce and never being ashamed of your passions. That and 50 more Nerdette episodes are available at name is Sally O'Malley. I'm proud to say. 50 years old i'm not one of those gals who's afraid to tell a real age and i like to kick stretch
3: and kick i'm 50
4: 50 that's like half a hundred indeed thank you for listening on itunes stitcher and soundcloud
2: throw us some stars if you're feeling generous like the awesome ben
4: dashley did on itunes
2: Thank you for all of the tweets and likes and reblogs. Spreading the good word about Nerdette really helps us out. If you happen to be a nerd with a business or who works for one that might like to get your message across to Nerdette listeners, shoot us an email, nerdettepodcast at gmail.com.
4: Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do
0: your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast,